Hi, everyone. We're back with another Eurythmics podcast. This is number 25. And I'm Rex Aldana with my co-host, Mark Stevens. Hi, Mark. Hello there. Today, we have a special guest. I'm going to let Mark tell you all about him. Um, go ahead, Mark. Uh, really excited to have Neil Wickens uh, on today. Neil is a very interesting guest for us because he... Um, comes in as a fan, longtime fan of Eurythmics, but he has a lot of interesting background in the music business and specifically with BMG and specifically with several Eurythmics projects. So we're hoping to get some inside knowledge here, some inside scoop or whatever, but also how he got there and how he grew up as a fan of Eurythmics and ended up working on some projects with them. So welcome, Neil. You're in London, I believe. Yes, it's uh, it's the day after the coronation here in the UK. It's very sunny uh, and I'm very excited to be here and, and talk about what was my job for a while, but has always been my passion, which is music and especially Eurythmics. Well, congratulations yeah. on the coronation. Is that a right thing to say? Congratulations. I, mean, I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's like that's my, it's my sentiment thing. for the whole British public. <laughs> yes. Although not everyone, but we won't get into that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> yes. It was very interesting to see a coronation. We haven't seen one in our lifetime. So no, and it always makes me think of obviously the classic king and queen of America. The Americans have never had a king and a queen. So it, exactly. it, Americans, in my experience, are always fascinated with our royal family because of that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I was totally, I watched the whole thing, totally fascinated. So I'm one of those. <laughs> so anyway, so um, Neil, for, thank you for, for uh, doing this. Um, tell me a little bit about, if you don't mind, tell us how you became a fan of Eurythmics. It started at a very early age, actually. Yes, I mean, I am 48 now. So I was just coming up to eight years old when Sweet Dreams was first released here in the UK. Um, so my birthday's in February. So it was around that time that um, Sweet Dreams, the single was released. I remember my parents had the seven inch single and my parents have instilled in me my love of music and love of all sorts of music. But at that age, I guess you were always um, drawn to what your parents were listening to. So I remember the seven inch single with the, uh, you know, the, the artwork and then the video that would be shown. And she, the thing that I always remember was her reaching to turn the light out at the end, you know, of the video, which I always thought was kind of sweet. So I really get my love of um, Eurythmics in particular from my parents, but actually as I got older and as Eurythmics career went on and I was always aware of them you know they're always on top of the pops or smash hits the magazines that we had over here my sister Anna was a massive massive fan and particularly savage and we two are one so uh, she always had it on so I'm I guess I, I owe a lot to my sister in particular for my love of of Eurythmics I just took it a little bit further wow. <laughs> I think you said your school you told me once your school had the seven inch or something for sweet dreams is one of the songs you could probably check out or something in the library i don't know <laughs> um did we have that yeah did we, we used to have music in the library yes yeah 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 my school never had any cool music to <laughs> <laughs> i don't think so yeah we um, have music you could check out the, yeah. the local libraries had like albums you could check out 
Oh, really? Okay, well, maybe that's it. So before we get started, we always try to ask fans when we have them on. So tell us, you know, your favorite song, your favorite uh, album from Eurythmics. You got one that you want to talk, not to put you on the spot or anything. (laughs) I mean, this is, and I have listened to a lot of your podcasts as well, and I know it's really difficult. It's like choosing your favorite child, not that I have any children. (laughs) Um, I'm going to cheat completely, and I'm going to give you a top five because I can't cheat. Um, and the top five I mean obviously Sweet Dreams is in there I think it has to be in there it's unavoidable but gems like This City Never Sleeps is a particular favourite of mine you can hear the sound of the underground trains uh, is very relevant as I live in London Mm. Um, and I actually used to live in an apartment built above a tube line and you could hear the sound of the underground trains at night. So it always makes me think of that song. You know, Neil, um, I, I identify with that because when I was young and that song was popular, uh, walls so thin, I could almost hear them breathing. I lived in apartments with walls so thin, I could you could hear the people talking next door. So yes. that's, how I, that's how I identified with it. it, it the, the lyrics in that song are just incredible, so evocative. Yeah. And the, the, the music um is just wonderful it really is a fantastic way to end off the sweet dreams album so I, I love listening to that song um shame from the savage album um i particularly love the the dance the extended dance remix of that one um better to have lost in love and never to have loved at all from be yourself tonight a, a real favorite and then you have the um poster behind you there rex you have placed a chill in my heart i think is uh one of the finest pop songs ever written and recorded. Yeah, I would have to agree with that. Yeah, that is a great, is a great, is a great, great. Best. I love that. Yeah, I, like, I love uh, better yeah, to I have lost than love. Such a great song. Sorry, Mark. Yeah, <laughs> no, I, I like that you mentioned the the uh, the shame remix, and it's so interesting. I was listening to that just a couple of days ago, and it'd been a while since I'd listened to it all the way through, and. Um, it was shame, right? That you said, yeah, right? yeah, that's right. Uh, and uh, it is, and I, I love some of those uh, remixes that when I go back to them, like shame that I really hadn't listened to in a while. Interesting. They really like build. Them. They really build and add so much. I think nowadays remixes can be so avant-garde and completely disconnected to the original material. I think what was great about some of those '80s remixes they were additive to the original track and you could really still feel part of it. And I think the ones for Savage in particular really did that. Yeah, I think yeah, you I got the nail so- on the head. Today's remixes are, they don't even sound like the songs anymore, you know? I have to give Lady yeah. Gaga credit. She put out a remix album and I was, I, when I listened to it, I thought, I don't know if I'm not, am I gonna like this? But it kept the original spirit of the songs and it didn't change, you know, into something completely different. But- Well, there's the classic story, isn't there, of Aphex Twin. And then he was commissioned to do a Bjork remix and the courier had turned up at his house to get the, the tape and he hadn't done it. So he just picked something up and gave it to them. And it was nothing to do with Bjork, as I understand it. And they, this was the remix because he hadn't done it. Oh, so that's, how, that's how it all started, huh? <laughs> no, but I'm glad you mentioned Shame because, you know, I, I, I know critics have said that's one of their finest singles, you know, and, and I kind of agree with that. You know, not, not the biggest hit, but such a great song and so much... Yes so much uh to say in that song about society and about consumerism and all sorts of things and which um, still rings true today i believe yeah. oh completely completely true yeah and it, it it gets it's really it gets lost in the shuffle even you know it 
it's it's said it's it was set apart from almost everything else on Savage. Really, it it was it was its own thing, its own being. Yeah. Um, it was it's what an interesting list. I, I like that a lot. Um, very nice. Well, my favorite album is obviously Savage. It has to be Savage mm-hmm. for that. I've got you know so many amazing memories of listening to that growing up, and it's such a an about turn from Revenge, right. so clinical. Um, I. I absolutely love that record and play it from start to finish. Um, and over the last few years, I've been trying to find all the additional mixes and tracks and stuff that were on 12 inches or obscure remix albums. And I think my deluxe edition in my iTunes library is now 26 songs, which is just brilliant. I, I just love that album. Every single song in it is a classic. Yeah, it sure is. Are you doing a top five of your uh, albums, or are you just sticking? With no, that's them? just 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 savage. Um, oh. Yeah, that's that's just pure class for me. Okay. Now you started out um, after you you I, I don't know. Well, you said you worked in a, a record store once, very early. You know, one of, I guess one of your first jobs or something. And yeah, uh, so I I always wanted to be a musical theatre actor. That was my thing when going through uh, school, high school. Um, so at 18, I was trying my best to get into drama college. And as a big music fan in my hometown, um, I I knew the owner of the record shop very well. I was in there all the time. And uh, I remember one day going in on my 19th birthday. I'd been at work since like four in the morning. I, used to, I was a shelf stacker at a local supermarket. You know, everyone's got to start somewhere. And uh, she knew I wasn't very happy in this job. And asked, I said, ask me, you know, was I thinking about something else? And I was very tired. Obviously, this was like two o'clock in the afternoon. And I said, why do you want to offer me a job? And she went, yeah, come in and we'll talk about it. So I landed this amazing job in my local record store back when, you know, independent record stores in the UK really meant something. Um, and I view my four years at Trading Post as my degree in the music business. So I did everything from window displays uh, buying the stock, marketing campaigns, accounting, everything. I learned so much. And working for a, a record shop, you are exposed to so much music that I'd never been exposed to before. My my whole um, mind was open to a whole different array of music. It, it was wonderful. It was one of the highlights of my life, really. Wow. Did that help you get into the music business? Or how did, how did yeah. that happen? Yeah, so... In the early days, we would have reps that would turn up um, with their Ford Mondeos, usually, you know, with boxes and boxes of CDs in the back and sell the CDs to us or give them away to us so that we could, you know, help give them away in the store to help them in chart positions. Um, and then as the music industry changed, we became more um, reliant on telesales. So the record companies would then have people at the end of the phone selling you the, the, the music rather than visiting you in person. And I struck up a, a relationship, a very good friendship with um, my contact at BMG, Lucy, Lucy Richardson. If you're listening, Lucy, hope you're well. Um, because of Annie and Eurythmics, I was like, I'm going to make sure I, I keep on good terms with, uh, with these guys because I want to know more. And I remember once, I think it would have been 1997, so two years after um, Medusa had come out, I would always ask, is, is there a new 
any album coming? Is there anything coming? And she, one day she said, yes, yes, there is. It's on the schedules. But if it comes out, I will eat my desk, which has stuck yeah. with me, that that phrase. And it didn't come out, obviously. It didn't, there was another album for another six years. But that was my um, introduction into the music business. So when I moved to London in 98, um, I got a job in a bookshop, which I hated. Um, I was looking after poetry, erotica, and religion, a really interesting mix of books. And I, I, I hated it. I hate that job. And I quit after two weeks. Um, and whilst I was work, working my notice, Lucy phoned me up and said, hey, I've just been promoted. Why don't you apply for my job? So that was it. I, I had my interview at BMG in Putney and um, got the job. And I started in, the, in September 1998, you know, because I jumped the fence from buying records to then selling records. So I was then doing what she did, which was sell records to record shops. Now, what was what was the title for the job? What was the job? Uh, telemarketing. Okay. Okay. And that's your introduction to, and then this is BMG? Yep, this is BMG. It was, it was just wonderful to walk in. I remember we, we had uh, a sales conference in Brighton um, it was that was sales conference time, um, and I before I started the week before I started, I ended up in this fancy hotel down in Brighton on the south coast of the UK, pinching myself because I'm like, oh my god, I've got this amazing job, and I here I am in this hotel, and I'm mixing with record company executives, and had you know at the conference dinner, I sat next to Olive, the band Olive, you know, you're not alone um, from 1997, which was a big hit here in the UK. I can't remember if it was anything in the US. But I was like living my absolute fantasy job. I'm like, I'm work for a record company. I I am an employee. I I might get to meet Annie. I might get to do something with Eurythmics. You know, it was that exciting. Yeah. And that eventually did happen. Your first one of your first projects was working. How closely did you work with Dave and Annie on the Peace album? How did any of that come about? <laughs> um. So that was, an, I mean, I started in September 98 and then they were awarded the Outstanding Contribution Award at the Brits in February 99. So I'd been there like five minutes. Um, so I didn't really have anything to do with that album apart from selling it to the record stores. But the most interesting um, story I have around that was the market research we did around the album cover. So as everyone knows, Richard Abaddon did the uh, photography. Um, and I think if I remember rightly, and I just have to say, you know, I'm not no longer an employee of BMG or Sony BMG. This is all my personal recollections and my personal experiences from the time. And, and this is now going back, you know, a long time ago, uh, half my life ago, in fact. Um, so this is all personal recollections. But I think at the time we paid um, Richard Abaddon a million pounds to do the photographs. It was a big deal. Eurythmics' first album in 10 years, you know, and they were such a massive part of BMG's success in the 80s. And then along came these photographs, including some of the backs of their heads, as we all know. So we did some market research where we went and took a group of the public into a room and, we, you know, the, all the images, including the one of Annie holding Dave's head and them looking at each other, um, and gave them to the public to give them, you know, what what do you think of these? What's what's your view of this? Do you like this? Would you buy an album with this? 
And remember, this is long before the days of social media or uh, smartphones with cameras on your phone. Mm-hmm. Um, so nothing would ever have leaked out because of that. Um, and I remember people were kind of baffled that a, uh, an album cover might show the back of someone's head. Um, but ultimately, that was what Dave and Annie chose as the the album cover. That's what they wanted to go with. It was um, very much a let's go against expectations, which I think really sums up their entire career, right? right. But that was a really interesting snapshot as a an employee, but a fan to kind of go, oh wow, this is how decisions are made. This this is how an album cover comes to be. Yeah, it was. From all the pictures that they showed, were there other ones that that people liked better? Like maybe the one with his head under her arm or something like that? Or or, I, or were I think, there people that actually liked the actual cover that, that came to be? If I remember rightly, there was a little bit of horror within the record company uh, leadership about the choice. I think the, the standard headshot would have been great for them looking at each other. But ultimately, um, the the artist has a lot of control over what happens it's their music it's their content it's their creation right so in the end they were they went they went with what we all know and love as the back of annie's head <laughs> the back of his well, head too they have had these things over the years i know clive davis was not sure about the bear cover uh, uh back in the day and she ended up explaining it you know right. in the liner or something you know? i always so, thought that was but, unusual that she had that she explained it you know yeah, well, so. someone like Annie, and I think everyone's familiar with the term A&R, artist and repertoire, which back in the day would have been pairing a songwriter's song with an artist. So here is a song, here is an artist. How do we put them together? A&R. Um, with an artist like Annie, she she's not A&R'd by anyone. She does her own A&R. So when you're at the stature of someone like Annie, the success that you've had, you deliver a I mean, this is back then, right? And I'm sure it stands the same today. You deliver a finished product to the record company and say, hey, here's my new album, right? It's not a case of the record company kind of going, we need you to do this or we need you to do that because it's Annie Lennox. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, again, and I think I've said this on this podcast before, Clive Davis in his autobiography talks about that. You know, and he, of course, the the American record company uh, uh, president. Uh, but he talks about that that he viewed Annie as an artist, and that he thought, okay, we could give her this load of songs, and she would be huge and massive. And but, and he's and he said it was always interesting. He was always intimidated by her in a little bit of a sense. And I always thought that was so strange that this man who had created so many people and had done so many uh, albums and that, uh, and he said that in a, in a positive way, in the sense that because she was such an artist, she wasn't going to be dictated to, and he knew that, and he wasn't even going to bother uh, trying to do that. So it's interesting. Um, so when did you first have the opportunity of your lifetime and meet Dave and Annie. When did that actually happen? Oh, so I'll just give you a little step between that. Okay. So I uh, I had the opportunity to change jobs. So I was in the sales department selling records. 
And I had the opportunity to go and work in the commercial division, um, which is like, you know, the, the division that would do all the back catalog stuff and the, the, the non-frontline products uh, with a guy called Charlie Stanford, who enticed me into the commercial division by saying they were looking at doing the remasters or the repackaging of all the Eurythmics albums. Um, so I started that process in 1999 with Charlie on, on the side. In the end, I ended up staying in sales and I got promoted up through. Um, and by the time I left in 2007, I was head of sales for Columbia Records UK after the merger. But so I was working on all the reissues. But my first time of actually meeting Annie uh, was for the Bear album. And a few of us... Um, went up to the studio to uh, listen to the album for the first time. Um, Sarah Silver, who was the head of international, I think she either knew or was the cousin of Stephen Lipson, uh, Annie's producer. So we said, she said, Let, let's go up and, and listen to the album. So it was the first time the record company had heard it. So there's people from TV and radio and press and sales. Um, none of us expected Annie to be there, right? Because it's just, we're just going to go and listen to the album. And, uh, walked into the studio and there's Annie fucking Lennox stood in front of me. I mean, literally I'm, how old would I have been? I was 28, literally was gobsmacked. Oh my God, there's my icon. There is Annie Lennox. And I'm about to listen to her new album for the first time anyone's ever heard it with her. So we sat and uh, we listened to the album and I, my eyes are just like boring into her. She's on the other side of the room and she's obviously very, she's really taking in the music and listening to it in a different way because there's other people here for the first time. And uh, the album finished and her, she looked up and she said, that's really dark, isn't it? Those were, that was her first description of the album because obviously it was very personal about her split from Yuri Fruckman. Um, and I was just beside myself with joy, like, you know, the, the inner kid was there, like really thinking, I can't believe this is happening. This, the little kid in, you know, that grew up loving this woman's music and here I am in a professional capacity. And um, she, you know, we had a conversation as a group and she made a comment about the fact there was very few women there. There was only a couple of people um, from BMG in TV and promotions that were there. So, you know, her, activism and her belief and her support of women and women's rights around the world you know it stems everywhere she's she lives that on a daily basis and as we were leaving i i thought this is you know this is my chance i may never get this opportunity again so i went up to her and i said i just wanted to tell you that i'm a massive fan and you you should know that somebody who really loves your music is working on this project and really believes in you and it's not just a job. And she took me by the hand, held me by the hand, looked me straight in the eye and said, thank you so much. That means so much to me. And uh, I started to well up and then somebody pulled me away, get Wickens away from Annie Lennox. Um, <laughs> that was just, just, just wonderful, just magical. You know, you, you never think you're going to meet the, your idols. And then here I am working on her project. Yeah. That's amazing. Um I love that at the end of it, that she acknowledges how dark it is. But I also love that at the end of all that, you were in this sense of so much, as you just put it, joy. Um, and even after listening to that album, which of course, it, it, you, any any of us can listen to that album, which is one of my favorites. 
um, in so many different ways. And I think too, it was very interesting that you said um, that she acknowledged from the people in the room that there weren't, were not a lot of women hmm. because I that is a very, um, because of the subject matter, I think it's, it, it, it's, I think uh, perhaps it, it speaks to women in a different way. Uh, not that men can't uh, understand it. Of course we can, but um, because of the divorce and because of what she went through. And, and I think just even on, on a recent podcast that Rex and I were talking about, you know, she could have talked a lot in interviews about that album in from this very personal sense that I mm. think a lot of people could have acknowledged and felt, you know, going through those same emotions of, of a shattered marriage or whatever. So anyway, it was very interesting. But again, to go back to that, that she acknowledges, boy, this is dark, isn't it? And you're back here, at, you know, in some row like, oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> well, yes. And the, the I mean, was... song on the album is so dark anyways, you know, oh, God. I mean, it ends on such a. Yeah. Actually, I've said this before, and I'll say it again. If I think Bear should be listened to in reverse, because if you listen to it in reverse, that's the trajectory of a, of a failed relationship. You start out with, oh, God, what has happened to me? And you end up at the end with a thousand beautiful things. You come out of it and you're happy and you've recovered. Or that's a good one. But if you look at the look at the um, the track listings, if you do it in reverse, it's kind of like the begin the beginning the end of a relationship, the hell the person goes through emotionally, and then the the end where they come out of it and they're a stronger person. Is it is it sort of like what what is it the five stages of grief and you you end yeah. up with <laughs> right at the end. And of course, I'm not saying that. It, it is actually that way done in reverse but you know oh god could never have been the first song on the album no so i'm gonna do that <laughs> i'm gonna i'm gonna listen to that in reverse that's a really good idea yeah i mean think about it that way think about the steps you go through when you've been through a breakup the first step is oh god right yeah, so. yeah i i am divorced myself um so yeah i can uh, i can uh really empathize with that of yeah. course, the ultimate divorce song is obviously Abba's The Winner Takes It All, which I listened to on the day my divorce came through, which was yeah. a year, um, six years ago today, actually. Oh, well. <laughs> uh, We're happy about that. We're happy about that. Okay, all right. <laughs> Never know how to quite take that. Uh, but <laughs> um, so, um, so that's 2003. Um, yep. And coming up fairly quickly is the remasters project. Yes. And I very if you if I remember what you and I talked about, you were very involved with that. Where is that correct? <coughs> yeah, I mean, myself and Charlie Stanford, uh, we did that whole project together, um, which was you know, like a kid in a toy store, right? Um we I was basing my own personal desires as a fan of the music balanced out with what we were allowed to do um, from a record company perspective. Um, and, you know, I've, I've read lots of people's comments and thoughts about the reissues over the, the last, however many years it is, 18 years. And I try not to take some of it personally because I know at the end of the day, it's my name on the, on the label as a music consultant, right? Um, but I worked on that for six years and, you know, you can see here my pride of place, 
the Eurythmics box behind me, um, there were so many variations on what that could have been. Uh, I wanted it to be double discs, you know, like Pet Shop Boys uh, with their further listening packages. To me, I think they're the, the epitome of what a great remastered package should be. And I was basing what I wanted to do on that, but I wasn't allowed to do that from a budget perspective. Um, and I've just moved house. I'm, I'm in a new place now, and I've been going through a lot of boxes and found lots of stuff. And we actually meant to release the remasters in 2003. Um, I have uh, a sales brochure from 2003 detailing what we wanted to do, but then Bear album came out. So then we were like, okay, we're gonna shelve that for now, and we're gonna do it next year. Um, and the starting point for any repackaged album, remastered album is the master tapes, right? So it's what's in the archive, what's in the vault, what have we got to play with above and beyond the album tracks that everybody knows. And I remember having this box arrived with all the tapes from the, from the, from the archives. Um, and you're like, oh my God, this is gold dust this is so valuable again I, I can't believe I'm I'm getting to do this I'm being paid to do this <laughs> one thing that we did find that there's at the time couldn't find everything right there wasn't every single thing that had ever been released was available in the vault so there's quite a few of the um early b-sides for example that at the time if I remember rightly we couldn't find so that's a reason why some of them aren't on Sweet Dreams because we just didn't have them. Um, I know lots of people have commented around some, some sometimes remasters are done from vinyl from a seven inch and you can hear that a mile off and we didn't really want to do that. Um, and plus Dave was in charge of the remastering. You know, he had approval on everything. So um, they weren't what I wanted them to be but I was really happy with them when they finally came out. The big mistake, and I will apologize for this, is the Eric Thorngren mix of Would I Lie To You, which was a complete balls up because that was mislabeled on the masters. But I think either end of the last year or this year, it's finally been released digitally yes. on a on a compilation. Yes. So I've I've updated my, my uh, own track listing in my iTunes to make sure that that's right. But I do apologize for that, but that was mislabeled. I've been I've been waiting for that and to when that when I saw that was coming out I'm like please 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 let them get it right on this compilation. Yes. Yeah. But you know I, and I've talked about that before and it's so interesting to hear you talk about it and how it was mislabeled because I always thought that that was the case because you could see how easily that could be done ET extended EXT period how right. easily things like that can happen um so let me let me go back for just a moment, if you let me. Um, maybe other people knew this. I never knew this because you even talked about it a few minutes ago. I never knew that the remaster project, Ultima Collection, whatever, was that long in the process. Yeah. I think you know when to go. It could have started in '99 or even that it was that long. Uh, that's fascinating to me. It is. Um, what takes well, if you think back to 1999, um, Eurythmics had done a performance for the outgoing BMG president, John Preston, the year before. First performance they'd done in eight years. And out of that was um, formed the seeds of what ultimately became peace. And 
the record companies all take turns in being the chairman of the Brits. And so somebody thought it would be a good idea to get Eurythmics together um, to, to do that as a launch for what might come that year. So the idea to do the remasters came out of that because all of a sudden there was this press and interest in Eurythmics catalog. Again, they were, they were working together, they were talking to each other. Um, and it was about maximizing the potential on that. But then the Peace album came out and then it was decided, you know, let's focus on that rather than the, the reissue. So it gets pushed out for whatever reason. And then they went on tour and then Annie did Bear. Um, and then, you know, all of those things get factored into how a record company will release material. Definitely back in those days, it's very different now. It's a very different industry. It's much more immediate. Yeah. But in those days, you really have to plan when are you going to do this? When have you got access to the artist to promote it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, if there hadn't have been uh, the Peace Tour and Bear and all that, and nothing had interfered like with the remastering project, how long do you think it would have taken to come out? One or two years, maybe? Or Yeah, yeah. I'm just kind of trying to get a sense of how long a project like that takes, you know, to do. Well, I first started working on it in 99 and they came out in the autumn of 2005. Yeah. So ultimately it took six years. Right. But they were delayed a couple of, because of, so if there were no delays, it would have been more like a couple of years or something. I'm just trying yeah. to get a sense of how long it would take, you know, if there were no. Yeah, because there's, you know, the, the whole process of remastering an album takes time. Yeah. Um, Phil Savage, who did all the sleeve notes, you know, he has to do all the interviews. And then working with, sorry, there's a fly in my flat. Get off. Um, you can edit that out. Uh, working with Lawrence, right? So he went back to all of the original pieces of artwork um, and famously corrected the the square on Sweet Dreams album, which he said to me absolutely haunted him every time he saw it because the, the line at the top of the square box wasn't straight. So he was able to do that digitally you know and that takes time so all of these things add up to take taking time um which makes the process quite long and drawn out and people tend to then lose a little bit of interest because it's coming and then it's not and then you have to go back to the drawing board and then the artist will say yes or no um i know lots of fans and i've read lots of people and i think you talked about this on one of your podcasts about a track called armadillo um yeah, I so wanted was, to ask you about that, but go ahead. <laughs> which I have heard. Yes. Yeah, so, I used to have. So tell us in one sentence, how would you describe that song? Um, very much like um, an electro dubby um, off cut from somewhere between In the Garden and Sweet Dreams, quite avant-garde. But I, I had a whole box of CDRs of all this archive material, which was, su again, super exciting. Um, this is before I had a, we had iTunes, right? So I don't have it. So before you ask, I don't have it. I had to give it all back because Dave and Annie ultimately decided as is their right, you know, it's their music. Yeah. They, they were like, these aren't finished. These are songs that aren't fit for public consumption. We don't want to put them out. So as much as I would have loved to have them on, on those remasters, um, it wasn't my decision. So let me ask you about that because more and more we see uh, uh, special albums, double albums, special releases, and and artists are giving fans those exact kind of things that you just said that Dave and Annie would say, well, well that's not finished. That's, no, no, no. But you see a lot of uh, bands and 
artist saying, okay, okay, here's here's the first demo of this song and here's the second demo and here's the third demo. You know, and you take that as it is and, and you know, you may not, you may not listen to that demo like you would the final version because it, it isn't quite. And then again, you may, it just depends. Um, so, um, but they're, they've always, I think you've, we've heard them talk about that. You know, we, we don't do a lot of these things and, you know, or back in the day you could see Sweet Dreams where they went through several mm. incarnations of the songs. Uh, uh, I could give you a mirror being a great example of that. But, you know, a lot of fans are getting some of these things from different artists. Um, was that something not done back in the time or was it simply Dave and Annie saying, they couldn't be convinced like did did the record company did you or the record company ever say you know but i think fans would like to hear this it was it's interesting it's part yeah. of your so can you talk about that definitely i mean as a music fan as well as at the time working for a record company and to be honest i struggled sometimes working for the record company because I could see everything that it took to get an album onto a shelf in a record store, obviously very different nowadays. And I really struggled because it kind of took my love of, of music and going to buy CDs and records away a little bit. But as a fan, you do, and, and as somebody that was you know, selling the records, you have a sense of the commerciality of, of a release. And obviously you say to an artist, this is going to sell better if you've got something on there that the fan doesn't have, you know, um, I remember being in a, a scheduling meeting uh, and we were talking about um, a Whitney Houston single uh, release around um, the greatest hits that had come out. And the person in the meeting, I won't name names, the person in the meeting said, this is what we usually do with Whitney. And I was like, but that was on the last single. That's not of interest to the fans. That's, that's you're not giving the fans what they want. You know, you, you have to try and, um, deliver something that's different, that's got a, a different remix or a, a different B-side or whatever that might be, so that you really get fans engaged to help drive the single up the charts, not just put the same old B-side that you had last time, because that doesn't work. So to answer your question, absolutely, I made the case that having these tracks would make the album reissue much more interesting to a fan who may go, well... I've got the album, I've got the singles, I've got these all already, but actually I don't have this unreleased track, I'm going to buy it. But at the end of the day, it's their decision. You know, sure. if they don't want to release something, nobody can force them to do it. I, I think um, we've talked, you know, we're all fans of ABBA as well. Um, Benny and Bjorn are, are very similar in that respect. They don't want to release unfinished versions of songs because... They're not, they're not done. You know, we got ABBA undeleted in 1994. Um, but they're like, we don't want to release all this other stuff because it's it's not what we want to to do. I think on the visitors repackage, there's um, that uh, from a twinkling star to a, like an angel leaving, um, whatever that track is. And you see that progression, how the songs change, all the demos. Yeah. which I thought was a fascinating insight into the creative process. Mm -hmm. But I think you have to respect that sometimes the artist just doesn't want to, you know, open the kimono and, and show what's behind the scenes. Yeah. Yeah. And I can get that. Um, 
and and you can't appreciate that and understand that. Uh, what other um, do, can you tell us about any other songs that you might have heard that we have never heard? <laughs> um, yes, I have heard, and I actually do have a copy of, but I, I I'm not never going to release it. That's not my music to release. But I do have Everlasting Love, which was part of the TVP project. So that was quite exciting hearing all those cover versions and adding them onto the uh, repackages. I don't know why we didn't add that, if I'm honest. I can't remember why. why it wasn't used. I think it was because it just didn't fit on In the Garden. You know, if you've got In the Garden, which doesn't have one of those cover versions on it, and then all of a sudden it's there, Everlasting Love. At the end, you're like, what's this? You know? Um, I want to ask you about the the my guy. Was it always that short? Yeah, because it just seems like it just sort of cuts off, you know, like yeah. it's just done. Yeah, and it leaves you wanting so much. I love that that sort of electro version of my guy, and 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 then it just ends. And last like, night I, I don't want it to end. <laughs> what? Yeah, they, they, you want them to carry on because I think yeah. it was George Harrison, wasn't it? They were they were doing that project with George Harrison. It never quite got the got to see the light of day. Yeah. I've also got. Um, a snippet of Annie singing Close My Eyes and Count to Ten, which is very beautiful, but it's literally only about 40 seconds that just was on a, a CDR. Um, but the other what is, stuff- What is that uh, from? Is that What era is that from? I'm not sure. Oh. I don't know. It's just her vocal. It's a Dusty Springfield song? Yeah, that's that right. right. Okay. Oh, okay. Oh, interesting. So um, how did... How did so all these things exist on some sort of recording. Somewhere. Then how does it somehow get to the record company? How is it just not in Dave and Annie's studio? I, mean, I don't I don't even under, think I understand how that works. So you have to remember that an artist is signed to a label and the label owns the copyright to those recordings in general, a standard. So they own the masters. Um, when Annie was doing her solo stuff, it was her company, La Lenoxa, which was exclusively licensed to RCA BMG. Um, it was the, one of the biggest fights, I think, in, in, in history was always Prince was fighting against Warners for control over his masters, George Michael as well. You know, you, you, you control them, you make the music, but you don't own the rights to it. So it's very important to remember that, that, if there is stuff that's been delivered to the record company, it becomes their property. Um, and you can argue about the, the the pros and cons of that approach, but historically that's that's how it works. Yes, but how does a 40 second clip make it to the record company? How is that just not something that you're fiddling around with? Yeah. Somewhere that gets delivered for, I don't know, for a B-side or this needs to go into the vault or what, whatever the agreement so is. Yeah. And this is, you know, this is, we're going back a long time. This is 30 odd years ago, um, well, 40 yeah. odd years ago. And contracts were very different back then. You know, I think artists and management are much more savvy now in how they go about licensing their music. Like the current BMG, the, the current incarnation of BMG, very much acts as a conduit for artists who own the copyright to their own recordings and just use BMG as a, a conduit who provides marketing and distribution, but you know, they still own the artist owns the copyright now, which I think is a fairer system personally. Let me go back to one thing you said a few moments ago um, about that some of the um, early B-sides and sort of things, they simply could not be found. 
the the masters of them. What worries me now? Let's say let's say that um, Sony is it Sony uh, le le uh, Legacy or something now? Is that what it's called? Anyway, they want to do something again. Isn't that I mean, how much more difficult is it after all of the years that have now passed to even find these? I mean, how difficult and or is it to find these things and they're all cataloged somewhere or hopefully cataloged or perhaps as in what you mentioned, were either not cataloged correctly or in the wrong space? Yeah, I think I mean, it's obviously been some time since I was um, an employee at BMG, Sony BMG. But I think artists and record companies have become much more aware of the need to protect these masters. We all know the story of Universal and the fire at one of Universal's archives where not only the original masters, but the copies of the masters went up in flames because they were stupidly held in the same place, right? And that's it, gone. Um, you know, the the opportunity to remaster those tapes disappears. So if Sony have done an exercise to kind of like bring everything together and protect, you know, that's that's where they make the money is the ability to monetize the master tapes of the artists, right? That's how they make the money. So I would hope that they have maybe pulled things together into one place. The 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 I mean over my shoulder here you can see the catch single that I've got here. This is the thing that I would love for somebody to find the master for and and digitize yeah. so we can get um uh that those two songs finally on a, a streaming platform. But again it's about what was done at the time, the catch was a band that only released one single and morphed into the tourists in the late seventies. You know, did people really understand the need to keep hold of masters in the same way that we do today? I don't know. So it's all about how much, um, how much somebody cares about the masters that belong to the record company. Yeah. And, and particular, and, and, and the catch there, you know, there was no reason for someone to think necessarily you know what's going to happen in a few yeah. years this <laughs> yeah. so it's, it's human life gets in the way and you kind of move on and it, it you we've all been it'll there be in some... a box it'll be in a box somewhere someone who yeah. doesn't know who the catch are just thinks well what's this and it'll be sitting somewhere in a dusty box because you know that's that's in my head i'm thinking that i have to believe that somebody will find it one day yeah well, the, the, that's how a lot of it happens. You hear stories. I just discovered it. It was at the bottom yeah. of this. I just came across it and here it was. Yes, I have faith that that will happen. <laughs> well, I, I do know and have access to someone who has some early catch recording. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> what was different to the singles? That was sold on eBay many, many years ago. And it's it's the real. So it's, it's quite oh, wow. fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, but those, the point of that is that those kind of things exist, and they exist in some form or another. It's not necessarily a master, of course, but uh, it's it's a fascinating um, uh, moment in time yeah. that could be could be so fascinating on a Eurythmics, um, you know, some sort of look back, and that you could go back that far. I'm like, here's the process and the prog progress of getting somewhere, um, but. Um, you you were at some of the um uh early promotional 
with Dave and Annie and 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 uh, for the remasters project, correct? Yeah, that's right. With um, there was an art exhibition in a gallery here in London, um, and they were an installation. You know, they sat there in their uh, silver suits with their eyes closed next to each other. Well, a bit like what you've got behind you there with all the posters. They just had all the posters of all the artwork and images of their career around them. Um, and then there's Dave and Annie sat there. And um, I'm going to show you the um, the box, which literally arrived. Um, uh, Charlie gave it to me as we were walking in. So the Eurythmics box, which everybody knows, which has all of the, the eight albums inside. And I was privileged enough to be able to deliver Dave and Annie their copy of the box and say, here you go, here, here's what we've been doing. Um, and they knew of me and I'd met Annie before, uh, but they knew because everything got signed off by them and we, we sent stuff to them and we got their approval to do, to do whatever it was we were doing. Um, and so I don't know if you can see this, but in the middle of my box uh, it's signed by both dave and annie saying thank you mm. for all your hard work lovely um this obviously is priceless to me yeah. this is a, a pure fantasy dream boy this is like this is my my finest thing yes yeah. yeah, well, when you get something like that suddenly everything else in your collection is not as important is it <laughs> i mean it's still I mean, as important but not as important as that <laughs> not as important as that because it's both of them signed it and it's something that i've worked on and my name is on there as well yeah. Um, and I have a picture in my house of of myself and Annie at, at that event, which takes pride of place. Yeah, that's fantastic. Um, were uh, that there must have been a great time for you for so many different reasons that you know that um, all these things coming together, like you said, is the culmination of so many things. Yes, I mean it was very special to be part of it to work on it. Uh, you know things like. Um, listening to I've Got a Life for the first time, you know, in the, the BMG's boardroom and thinking, wow, this is the first new material in six years. This is a real banger. This is amazing. Um, willing it to get to the top 10 so that we could have another top 10 hit. Um, listening to Into the West for the first time in my office, uh, yeah. a CDR had turned up and and Jed Doherty, the, the, the president of the music division, came down to my office and said, you need to listen to this. So I put my headphones on and, and turned this song up loud and just cried all the way through it. You know, those those moments of bridging the gap between a fan and somebody that works in the music business. And there aren't a lot of people, I would say, that were really, you know, they just were doing a job. There weren't that many people that was in that were into it as I am. Um, not the stuff I liked anyway. Um, and then things like working on the Annie Lennox collection, you know, and presenting um, feedback to her on how it should be presented and what should be included. And that's why we have the second disc, for example, because um, we were making a case for Into the West to be included on that. But she felt, again, it was a little bit too dark and wanted to, well, maybe we could put it on a second disc. Okay, that's a great idea. Here's, here's the other things that we can do. Um, and I really wanted to do a... A remastered release of Under Pressure that she did with David Bowie for the Freddie Mercury concert because I'd worked right. on the Lisa Stansfield Greatest Hits project in 2002-2003 and we'd put on her track uh, from that concert with permission from Phoenix Trust so I thought we could do the same for Annie but um, in the end that idea didn't go anywhere because that had never been released it's only on YouTube 
And I thought that would be an amazing thing to to kick off. And the the final idea that I had, kind of like you said about going full circle, Rex, is about um, who could we introduce an artist of the time with Annie to perform. So I, I came up with the idea of uh, Annie doing a duet with Beth Ditto of The Gossip of an old um, tourists track to kind of like bring that full circle, which went to her and, and her management team, but ultimately wasn't taken on. Um, she went with the, the cover of the Ash song. Yeah, you know, uh, but I was... thought that would have been a really good thing to do. That's very interesting because oh. there's photos of Annie with Beth Ditto around mm. from around that time. So they clearly met each other. Yeah. Um, yeah. I saw the the gossip on Cindy Lauper's True Colors tour, you know, a few years back. Oh, great band. About 10 years ago, yeah. But yeah, that's interesting. Wow. Uh, let me go back for a moment on the Ultimate Collection. There are two new tracks and there was always discussion of a third. Can you tell us anything about that? Yeah, Do you it was remember like a duet it? with Kellis or something? Uh, I'm sorry, Rex, what did you say? Well, Dave Stewart used to say that there was one unreleased track, you know, from Ultimate Collection, I Got a Life, and was it just another love favorite? There was a third song they had done as a duet with Kellis, the singer Kellis. Oh, that's news to me. And now I never heard that. No. Oh, okay. Well, sorry, they, I can't help they you on that one. They talked about it. They talk, it. It was talked about in, in interviews at the time by Dave. So. We're all wondering, there's yeah. a song out there with Eurythmics and, and Kellis. I never heard it, never heard it, never saw it. Yeah. Well, then I'm wondering. If... <laughs> um, but um, so um, did you um, did you feel like um, you, you you it's been kind of weird. You you almost apologized a minute ago, like, well, I know the remasters aren't a, exactly what some fans would have liked but um you don't actually do you don't feel responsibility for that do you i mean 100 100 you know oh. it was my decision where these tracks were going to be what was the track listing going to be where were they going to be placed what what were the covers going to be on which album what could we use what would be of interest um and obviously when you've got the only got one cd you know, there's there's a finite amount of time on a CD. You can't put everything that you want on one CD. So there were compromises that were made, and obviously mistakes were made with "Would I Lie to You" ET mix, as we've talked about. Um, but well, no, I. But you 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 go back to you know that you said there was a budget issue. You would have preferred uh, a two disc set for each album, um, but uh, why? What can you tell us about budget issues? I, I, I would imagine that, you know, record companies have so much money they're going to put into a project. Um, I mean, that's always the assumption, but there, it, it, there isn't. You know, every project has its own budget, right? You've got X amount of money to spend on that budget. Um, if it's a brand new album, then that budget might be helping them with studio costs or, um, you know, hiring a band or hiring a producer. If it's something that's a, a repackage, then it's, hiring the designer, um, hiring somebody to do all the interviews, do the artwork, um, and then marketing that particular project into the into the market, right? So you don't have a, a finite amount of money. And if you, you know, you you budget out how many think how many pieces do you think you're going to sell? How many units are you going to sell? How much revenue is that going to generate? 
So that gives you, okay, how much money do we then have to spend to make this project happen? So it's all about balancing all of those different factors to go, right, here's your budget. Sometimes you get more money if it starts to look like it's going to be really successful or like with the greatest hits, how much money are we going to spend on TV advertising, which was, you know, how you drove things back then, not so much now. Um, so it's all about how, how do you bring all that together? And that makes, if you want to then create two CDs, that's twice your manufacturing costs because you've still got to create two discs, right? So it's, it adds, it all adds up and somebody, you know, above my pay grade at the time made the decision that, you know, we didn't have that amount of money to spend. We had to stick with one disc, much to my dis dismay, dismay. I wonder where um, Eurythmics would fit into these kinds of things today, because there is, in my mind, there's sort of a sense that even maybe more than in 2005, that there is a, an interest in Eurythmics, at least, uh, uh, that has, they seem to me to have gotten to that level of massive respect that they may not have even had in 2005. And I think people have respected Eurythmics, of course, for a long time, of course. I'm not saying that they didn't. But they have seemed to get to this level of, you don't hear anyone disparage any Linux. You you don't see that. You go on no. some YouTube, you know, and it's any YouTube of Annie seeing anything, whatever it is, or a video. And there's all these people from around the world, you know, talking about her in this, most glowing comments. Uh, so I think there's, it's been built upon itself that there's a massive amount of respect for both of them. Sure. That may not have even existed back in 2005. It would have, you're still, you know, not far off from, you know, actual projects happening and that kind of thing. I think there is a general love for Annie and for Dave and the legacy that they've had. You know, Sweet Dreams has had over a billion plays on uh, Spotify, for example, so it still resonates today with a lot of artists that are coming through today because it's such a, an unusual sound. And we've seen them inducted into the you know Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, Songwriters Hall of Fame, and I think the the love for them and their music is still there. When the nominations and then when they were announced that they were being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame last year came out, I contacted. Uh, one of my friends at Sony Music and said, hey, what are you guys doing? And he was like, we're not really doing anything, um, which I was really saddened by, to be honest with you, because, you know, there's so much knowledge out there, you know, you guys and Steve at Ultimate Eurythmics, um, we could really deliver an amazing package, which would have all of those extra tracks on if we can find them, you know, and would be a two disc set and would really deliver what the fans want but I, I don't know why the decision was made that they didn't want to do it i don't know if it's something that dave and annie didn't want to do um but they certainly haven't uh, appeared as yet which is a real shame well i know that mm. i recently talked to uh somebody at 19 who told me they don't know of any plans this year for anything being released not for sweet dreams 40th or just or even for rock and roll hall of fame so it's sad we just, it's we very just sad to wait yeah <laughs> In the meantime, we have remastered albums, you know. <laughs> be nice to get remastered videos. I mean, Savage album video would be just amazing if we, yeah. but that's not owned by Sony. That's I think it well, it was Virgin at the time, so it would be Universal now. So somebody at Universal 
you know, Actually, I that would be good because 1984 like, and the Savage album video could be done at the same time. I bet you the Savage video album would sell better now than it did back in the day if it were released. Yeah. Uh, I, that, I think people would go bonkers for that. If, yeah. if you really did that well and you went back and got all the various videos and all the, uh, I'm sure there are interviews, what you could do with that is amazing. Let me ask you really quickly, um, I thought about this when you just mentioned 1984. Of course, 1984 was not part of the boxed uh, piece. Different record company, I'm assuming that was that. Yeah. yeah. yeah what we, about... Go ahead. Sorry. We, we, did, we didn't have the rights to that. Um, so it wasn't something that we could do with. And I'm not... I don't remember any conversations happening with Virgin at the time um, as to why they didn't want to do it at the same time as us. But... That would be great. You know, I've really got into that album again recently. Um, mm -hmm. And it would be nice to hear that remastered with whatever's in the the archives for Virgin. But that's up to them. Well, even from a podcast perspective, Rex can probably talk more about this. But we've done, I think this, is this our 25th podcast? 25th. I think it is. But one of our early podcasts was about the 1984 album. And it still remains to this day our most downloaded podcast mm -hmm. uh which is always surprising to me but there is i think there's a set of people who really adore 1984 it is more than sweet dreams more than touch it it, it is a combination for people that it's 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 the eurythmics album uh project so it's very fascinating i think i think virgin whoever you know would be at this point could do really well with that and and it's probably not one of those things that a record company, maybe you can speak to this, you know, it, it, I think it sold well, but it wasn't Sweet Dreams. It wasn't Be Yourself Tonight. It wasn't Revenge in the sense of sales, uh, I'm assuming. And so I think maybe looking back, it may be difficult for record companies to say, well, that that wasn't the most popular album. Why would we go back and do that? Uh, but but also mean, you have to think that Eurythmics were, as a group were signed to RCA. So they had a team at RCA all through the 80s that were managing that band, product managers, marketing managers, A&R guys, sales guys, press, radio. They were focused on that artist as a band for that roster. Whereas 1984, from a purely business perspective, was a soundtrack for a film that was put out by a label who obviously had a deal with the film studio to release the soundtrack. And I won't go into the, the story around the soundtrack. You know, that's well documented. I'm sure you, you talked about it as well. But there was no one there that's then fighting for Eurythmics as a group at Virgin because they weren't a Virgin artist. So it was released, I would imagine, and then quietly put down because there's nothing else they can do with it. Right. So it, it would be a difficult kind of... It wouldn't necessarily be a, a conversation that's coming up, even no. if it just... That kind of thing. So again, go back to Boxed, Touch Dance, and Eurythmics Live, the live album. Clearly, those were albums that could have been included. Were there ever any discussion? I, I know they're kind of like offshoots, but was there ever any discussion that those could be in Boxed as well? Do you recall? I wanted the second disc of Touch to be Touch Dance remastered. But again, we couldn't do that. We weren't allowed. So it wasn't deemed um, a big enough release to be able to pour it into an album on its own. Um, and yeah, I don't know why we didn't do 
uh, Eurythmics Live, which is a great album, especially the the third disc with all the acoustic tracks. Mm-hmm. And I remember buying that as a fan in 1993. I got my, you know, my A4 card that came in in the post saying, hey, this album's out, brilliant. Um, I don't know why we didn't do that, but uh, I think we were just purely focusing on the studio albums. Yeah, that makes sense, I guess. Really interesting conversation. Uh, and I, I, I absolutely knew it would be because... Uh, not a lot of people get to uh, have this experience that you've had mm-hmm. to go from very young fan who grew up in a household where music was important, but specifically this, uh, these two, Dave and Annie Eurythmics, were important or loved, you know, by parents and si- a sibling and you. Yeah. And to, it was it was a dream come true for you. It was a dream was come a- true, yeah. I mean, I still... You know, when I listen to their music now, I still have conversations with my sister about, I can't believe I, you know, I had dinner with Dave and Annie after they were inducted into the UK Hall of Fame. You know, I, I did that. You know, this is a you know a kid from, who grew up in Gloucestershire in the, in the west of the UK. Uh, and I, I worked on these things. It's, it's a real, real, um, I'm so proud of what I did. I'm so happy that I had that opportunity um, and that, you know, Dave and Annie allowed me to to play in their world for that brief amount of time. And I was just uh, somebody that would help get their their music into the into the marketplace. Did it ever become normal or uh, when you were in those special situations or was it always did you always have to pinch yourself? You know, clearly you could the right to be there. You were part of the company. But did it ever did, was it always special? <laughs> always special yeah absolutely you know it wasn't just a job for me I what's what's the saying do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life right mm-hmm. I was my job was my hobby right so I got to I was going to gigs like four nights a week sometimes two gigs you know you would you know take some buyer at HMV to a little gig for a new band that you were trying to push and in return you you know get them tickets to see Alicia Keys or Rod Stewart or whatever it was um so there was that element to it which so that was pure joy you know like it wasn't it wasn't work for me it was literally living my hobby and when you when you have a bond with an artist like Dido introduced me to her dad as the man who sold all her records in 2003 which was really I, I don't sell all your records. I'm just somebody that works in the sales team. Um, but, you know, things like that. And I spent my 29th birthday in the studio with Faithless listening to their new album in 2004. And Rollo used to come sit in my office and talk to me about their records because they didn't have management. You know, that was just normal. And the the most difficult thing would be, you know, you come home from work and you you meet your mates at the end of the day or the weekend and they say, oh, you know, how was your week? Oh, I hung out with Ido or I hung out with Westlife or I had dinner with Lisa Stansfield or whatever it was. After a while, people go, oh, you're just shutting off. And I'm like, actually, no, I'm just telling you about my week. This is what I do. So in, after a while, I would stop. I just wouldn't <laughs> say. I'd just say I work for a record company. Um, and then obviously when Simon Cowell, who I worked with at BMG bef- before he was Simon Cowell, um, became you know famous as a, a judge on pop idol and x factor um it would be like oh you work with simon oh, do you work for simon cowell i'm like no i work with simon cowell there's a big difference 
Yeah, very big difference in that. <laughs> but uh, is there, um, Rex, do you have anything? No, you wanted to bring up? we covered the Andy Lennox collection, which is what I wanted to bring up too. And we talked about that. I can't think of anything else now, unless Neil has something he wants to say that he hasn't said so far. Or I, don't know. I mean, at the end of the day, I'm still a massive, massive fan. And I've always got Eurythmics on. And um, there's um, a guy, Steve Hart, who's been doing a project on uh, building a CD single collection. Um, which has been fascinating to watch. So it's, it's inspired me to do that in my own iTunes library to create, you know, the singles. And then you realize just, oh, I don't have that version. Oh, I don't have that version. Um, and I'm- and Maybe maybe you know, when he's finished creating all the singles, and then Femi, Lawrence will finally <laughs> get the go, get the go to do it and it'll really come out. <laughs> well, I keep saying to Lawrence, because uh, we chat on Instagram, you know, there's so much love for his work that he should do a uh, an artwork book and do it via Kickstarter because I think there would be a, a huge appetite for that because you know even again looking behind you Mark all the artwork is so iconic it's so incredible to have a big coffee table book of all of that artwork and the different iterations that he will have in the archives because they're amazing I think people would lap that up. And I, I still think, to your point, Rex, everyone still wants to listen to and see more of Dave and Annie in their journey over the last 40, 50 years. Yeah. Totally agree. And uh, I totally agree about Lawrence. And uh, I know Rex and I do the same thing uh, and and have said to him, that's fascinating that you've done that same thing. Like, a book of this you know, all of these things, what you could do. I hadn't even thought about the Kickstarter or something like that. But, um, and uh, and uh, I've said to him, we've said it on, on podcasts before and interviews. I always think Lawrence is another one of those people who was so important to the history of Eurythmics. 100%. The look that he created and the designs uh, were incredibly important. And I love his story. I love it like I love your story in this sense, but I love his story. He was in the right place at the, right, the right time. time. Yeah. And his entire career changed because he walked into that record store, a record company, rather, record company, uh, hoping to get a job as a designer. And they just happened, Dave and Annie just happened to be there. And that's just fascinating. Yeah. Um, but I love that kind of stuff about life anyway. So that, that always fascinates me, but, um, uh, and, but it's been so really great to talk to you. And I th think you and I have like talked over time over a little bit and we've seen you on the, you know, the Facebook boards and all that kind of stuff. And just like you mentioned Steve Hart a moment ago, uh, his project has been so fascinating. Yeah. You know, I've been so into that. Because uh, I have all those things and how he's been specifically doing it and what specifically he's going to include. But you can see what a fascinating project that would be. I'd love for, you know, someone at a record company or I don't know if Dave and Annie see those things. But, you know, and I think people look at it differently than from fans. And I think that is probably uh, that we benefited, whether you know it or not. Uh, I think all fans benefited that from you being there and that you were a fan. And you may say, you know, 
<clears throat> I know this wasn't exactly what everyone was looking for, and it could have been slightly different. But I will have to say, you know, getting the remasters project, that was huge as a fan. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, it yeah. was absolutely 100% perfect. Nothing's ever going to be 100% no. perfect. But man, it, it got us a lot of stuff that we hadn't heard. It got us a lot of stuff that uh, we had not had remastered clearly, uh, and some B-sides and some remixes. Um, do I want more? Yes. yes. I'm a <laughs> we want it all. <laughs> I mean, I think we can, you know, what what I've said to Steve is like, I will get that in front of the people that I know still at Sony. If you deliver a kind of like, hey, here's what it could look like. Here's, here's half the work done. You know, then it allows them to kind of like maybe run with it. Who knows? But I think there's, there's definitely something we could get in front of those guys and say, hey, how about this? Because so many people are doing those big, you know, the I've got one here that, that ABBA and the ABBA book singles. And I think Wham are doing it this year, which is Sony again. So I think there's a real appetite if we can just present it to the the people in charge at Sony and go, hey, you should do, you should be doing this as a market for it. We will all rush out and buy it. Yeah, totally. I'll be in the front of the line. Uh, we would love to have you back on any future podcast. I hope you've enjoyed this. Oh, it's been great. Uh, Thank you. We so appreciate all your insights and sharing all that stuff with us. And like, I have to echo what Mark said, you know, the remasters thing was great. And I, and I know that you worked on it. So you, you know, you have your little opinions about this could have been better. Or I'm sorry about that. But like Mark said, the fans, we were so happy to get it. And whatever little things were not right, you know, you don't, you don't care about it. You just, you, you notice it and you move on. You're just happy to have what you have. And, so that makes me feel so happy because I am I am a fan as well as 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 we know and I am part of those Facebook groups and I'm surprised that it, people haven't put two and two together quicker because I had always thought oh my god people are going to hate me because I've got this track wrong or I couldn't find this because if it was me on the other side I'd be like oh you've done it wrong so I've carried that for years so for you to say that is uh it's really good for me. I feel like I've been absolved of my sins. Yes. And I think, um, after, well, no sins, but you know, <laughs> I think when all the fans hear this podcast, I think uh, you're, I wouldn't be surprised if you see some comments echoing the same thing. Oh, good I hope job. so. <laughs> good Thank you. It's been great. I really enjoyed this. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thank you. Please come back. Well, um, we can, I don't know what we talk about any further, but we could just pick a subject and talk with you about sure. it. I'm really fascinated that you were so young when you got into your rhythmics. That really fascinates me because at you got at eight years old, I wasn't even listening to music yet. You know, I well, when I was three, I was obsessed with Debbie Harry, so 1978. <laughs> well, that was and my then, first. Well, ABBA was first, then Blondie, then your rhythmics. So for me, it was I remember Debbie Harry, and then it was ABBA. So I'm a massive ABBA fan, um, and my parents, as I say, and my sister just had music on all the time. So music is just part of my very soul so I, I i've always got music on i'm always listening to music going to gigs uh it's it's something i'll never ever get away from i think that's that's the interesting thing i'm sure it's the interesting thing about the three of us and so many other people uh, i really do not understand people who like music in the background yeah that that yeah. it never has well, i internalize whatever it is it may be your mix it may be someone i've internalized music so much uh -huh. and it means so much to me 
in a lot of different ways, but I, I don't understand people who aren't like that. Uh, and right. not that not that they're bad people. It's just um, music means a lot to me in in whatever form. Well, as Madonna once sang, "Music makes the people come together." No, well, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, um, I think we'll 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 stop the podcast at that and we'll on to the next. But I think we can find many different uh, 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 podcasts that you'd be a great guest on. So sure, look we'll for it sometime soon. I suspect. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thanks, guys.